Welcome back to Beyond the Sectors, your bi-monthly podcast all about the beyond world of author duo Kit Roca. My name is Chelsea. And I'm Anna. And today, friends, we are here today to talk about Ivan, which is the third book in the Gideon's Writer series, and also uh, our last full-length novel for the time, which is a little sad, but we do still have uh, a couple episodes of short stories, as well as a big um, chat with Brie and Donna, which, speaking of, I wanted to mention it here, because I know not everybody necessarily listens to the chatter at the end. Um, we are going to be doing kind of an uh, AMA interview chat thing with Brie and Donna. So if you have questions that you have not heard them answer elsewhere before, or if you uh, have never heard an AMA with them and you have things you would like to know, feel free to uh, shoot the show, podcast, DM, uh, Twitter thing. Words are hard, guys. Daylight savings. You know what I mean. <laughs> Give us your questions if you have them. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably the biggest announcement. Uh, Anna, do you want to go ahead and give us a little plot summary of Ivan so we can hop right in? Okay, so Ivan is the most uh, Regency romance of all the Kit Roca books. Uh, it's a house party mystery with a forbidden romance between a, a princess and her bodyguard. It's so good as my best friend Kay would say these are characters who pine like ponderosas this is one of those <laughs> books that it is uh I love that you said Regency romance it is very like they are barely touching hands and you are like clutching the edge of your seat being like oh my god the sexual tension it's so good <laughs> um, but yes this is our like Anna said bodyguard and princess kind of forbidden love romance uh, this is also a very interesting book because I think it's one of the first books in the series so far that kind of deals with the interpolitics of sector one in terms of like this book being uh, about Maricela and Ivan is very much so about like um, marriage and marriage contracts and and continuing legacies and building empires and kind of that um, very uh, Regency style or almost kind of like uh, royal family style kind of politicking. Yeah, definitely. There's so much in this book that's about the family politics that are really behind Sector One, because to the rest of the sectors, Gideon is the leader. Of sector one. But here in this book, we really see Isabella's role as the head of the faith, and also uh, the public figures that Maricela cuts as a sort of confessor and servant, you know, and we have the role all these leading families who have married into the Rios clan have, and those who have not yet married into the Rios mm -hmm. clan and really want to. Um, there's so much politics about around it of because yeah there there were leading families of the faith and people who have profited by being at the prophet's side and they want to stay in power and have their way and they might not like all those changes their beloved Gideon is putting into effect mm -hmm. because we see in this book a continuation of kind of what we learned at the end of Deacon which is that Gideon is starting to rethink and want to expand and kind of shift the rules that the writers follow and just kind of some of the traditions and legacies that are currently standing in sector one which comes into play at the end of this book in the in the kind of ultimate revolving or resolving of the tension between uh, Ivan and Maricela. I also think this book's really interesting because it's like you said, it's all very contained. It's like a locked room, closed estate kind of murder mystery. And it's 
an interesting dynamic to kind of play with amongst all these other like very big things going on. This book also reminds me a lot of uh, A Walk to Remember because there's this very much so um, Ivan is trying to grant this list of wishes that Maricela has about Mm -hmm. this kind of life she would live if she didn't have to be the princess of Sector One. Things like going to a bar and going to a, a marketplace where nobody knows who she is and just all of these things that over the course of the book he's kind of able to make happen for her and those moments are really sweet and romantic because that's up those are the primary times we see Ivan kind of drop some of those defenses and those walls that he's built so high. Yeah, absolutely because I mean what we're dealing with is Maricela is feeling claustrophobic in her place as the princess uh in her being under guard all the time. Her I mean one of the major tensions is that she's falling for Ivan And then he has to guard her and be with her all the time. So she has no way to release her feelings or like have time away from him to have this breath from him. And then simultaneously, the the threats to Sector One are becoming more internal because in Ashwin, it's about the base, right? And the threats from outside to Sector One. And then in Deacon, it's from like old enemies Mm -hmm. using... Uh, a way back in so again it's like a threat from inside but then it really gets like here are the leaders of sector one and the leading families of sector ones and they're the people maricela is most at risk with mm-hmm. you know she can be at the market and be safer than she's in this house party because people want a piece of her all the time and that's a very interesting dynamic and it's one of the things i really like that gets discussed in this book because it feels like the appropriate book to do it in is there's this kind of discussion both of privilege because maricela is almost always kind of reckoning with her privilege as a member of this royal family and she does it very actively but there are also times when it doesn't even occur to her that what that she has a privilege or that what she's doing is from a privileged place and at the same time she's also trying to reconcile this um like tragedy competition right or what we Mm -hmm. all do of kind of the the pain comparison game of like well she doesn't feel like she can complain about any of her very justified you know negative aspects of her life because there are people in her sector who are starving. There are war refugees. There are people who have it admittedly worse. Oh, where she thinks she can't tell Ivan when he's, you know, he was poor. He didn't, he was abandoned. And he had this mother who had, because of her mental illness, gave him all these mixed messages about what he needed to do. And so she feels like, oh my God, I can't tell you and complain about like, I feel a little bit smothered. You know what it is to be like, smothered you know Mm -hmm. and then there's all the elements like yeah she she's adopted into the real family so that also brings an element to how she has to try to unpack her privilege because she learns that she has a sibling that she Mm -hmm. doesn't remember who has lived a completely different life he has not been in the royal family he's he and whether she has a right to disturb his life and let him know who she is. Uh, She would want him so she could have like somebody who is of her blood, but it would upend his life. And what could he, what could she provide? So, I mean, there's all that tension there. And then there's also the element of, yeah, she, she's lifted up so high into this world, but that also means she belongs to everybody. And Ivan and her have all these back and forths about 
what she's allowed to do and not allowed to do, uh, where the Rios family gives themselves, you know, like they're, they're always, they throw themselves for the people they love. They love the sector. So they let the sector take all these pieces from them. And he is going to be somebody who's going to try to protect her from herself. Right. But there's also that tension around, you know, she doesn't even notice the whiteness of her dresses, you know, Mm -hmm. and how, how special that is, you know, and uh, we see that that's something Brianna bring up a lot with like the finery that looks like it's humble clothing that the mm-hmm. the the Rios family wears, and how the whiteness of their dresses just highlights how much power they have. That they they can be clean all the time. You know, it's like wow. And we get that really great and really interesting scene um, where Ivan has a chance to go back and eat dinner with the writers, and they're having this like spicy shrimp dish, right? And even the fact that they're <laughs> eating, which like. The fact that they're eating shrimp to Ivan is such a clear sign of like, it's a subtle marker and he can see it as a marker of those who were born in the sectors and who are members of the writers who came from royalty and those like him who did not. Because mm-hmm. those who did not are not sure what to make of the shrimp. They've never really had it before. They know how rare it is and how expensive it can be and how much of a luxury it is. Whereas Ivan knows in his mind that this is the kitchen experiment of someone in the, you know, royal household who it may have turned out badly and they would have had to throw away all this shrimp and that the cost of that or and the or the amount to feed all of these people who need feeding. Well, on the the, the tithe element to it, right? That that there's all these rich producing families who provide these elements as tribute to the Rios family. Yeah, it's like, wow. If it's sort of really puts it into perspective it really makes the O'Kane seem small potatoes uh mm-hmm. next to uh the the power of that is in sector one even the politics you know i mean we saw a very you know a hefty you know dose of kind of complicated political machinations when we were with the O'Kanes, but it almost feels like it doesn't hold a candle to this because each family has so many members Mm -hmm. and the marriages and intermarriages or lack of marriages of each of those members has the potential to impact so many other like gears in the machine and so it's like Mm -hmm. we hear from nita and we hear you know from reyes some and we hear obviously from maricela and so we get so many kind of different perspectives from the characters as to what path they want to take and how that will affect or not affect like the sector politics and that doesn't even get into and we haven't even really talked about yet Ivan's whole mm-hmm. storyline and that is a whole even different part of the political weight to what's going on in this book. Yeah, and I mean like to go back to that of there's some I feel like Briandana set up a lot of pieces on the table for the future of the writers because we really explore Hunter and Gabe and Nita and all the people who are coming up and their motivations and concerns. We have, you know, the the Nabontero family facing this upheaval and trying to figure out like what is next. And that plays all into Gideon's roles for the writers. You know, he's he's taken these leading sons into his writers, some of them like Reyes fleeing it because they don't want to be a pawn to their family. Others Mm -hmm. because they have this real calling to be somebody who serves like Gabe. And then what it has, how it has caused problems for the family's ambitions, right? Because uh, it takes the leading son out of contention for a profitable marriage. It removes uh, the the most capable child 
yeah. from the leadership of the family. All those tensions and what, you know, what can cause, I mean, like I was reading, rereading the book and I, and I re- ran into so many storylines I'd forgotten about, including mm. the grandson of the prophet that shows up. I, there was that, there was the whole thing with the fortune teller. Her name yes. Sarah, oh my God. Right. Like, like this was is like, one of those what? books that, which we came across these a lot in like the, the beyond books, but like mm-hmm. worth rereading because you were almost so distracted by both like the slow build and the heat and the tension of the romance and the bigger picture like political movings of like the marriages Mm -hmm. that yeah there are so many of those smaller storylines and yeah I feel like as the third book this is really the book where Brie and Donna are starting to put more of the chess pieces on the board we're starting to see more of the the things expand and see the potential avenues and the different couples and people and kind of potential there but so much <laughs> that I, I you know as I was reading I, I was about. like oh my god what is this or I like forgot misremembered and mixed up you know a, a Reyes with a Montero or mixed mm-hmm. up a, a Hunter moment with a Gabe moment and mm-hmm. it's just there is this is one of those books that is worth rereading if for no other reason than like the tension and the romance and like there's sexy horseback riding and wandering through rivers <laughs> like there it's it's just short of like getting caught in the rain and having to flee to like the ruined <laughs> gazebo thing oh right? yeah like, yeah the like folly one, they're out by the folly right they're just like it's that one scene short but it's basically that and so it's there's so much that happens and Again, in this book, as we've seen explored in kind of the first two books already, that there's a very central question to both of the characters and to the way their relationship unfolds that has to do with worthiness and the value of a life, mm-hmm. especially in this culture where for so long death has been celebrated and glorified for the writers specifically. And then it's extra complicated for Ivan with not his mother's mental illness and what she has kind of taught him, his family's participation Legacy. in everything yeah. that set off the revolution that we didn't see on the page. And so there's just so many layers that go into both characters kind of figuring out how to define what they're worth. Right, because I mean, we've 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 learned about Adriana's kidnapping from from Maddox's side we've seen of of him having been traumatized by this assault and to learn that those were Ivan's uncles those are the people who 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 scarred uh Maddox in this way and um and how heavy Ivan feels about this right where he has Mm -hmm. this double the legacy yes he's the son of a saint right somebody who who died uh, in the service of the Rios family. And then he is raised by these uncles who are the reason uh, Gideon is the leader of the sector instead of Maddox, because Maddox has to, basically has to leave. He has he never wants to deal with this world again yeah. kind of thing. Uh, who has his fa- father uh, written out of the stories because mm-hmm. the, the prophet gets to do that. Uh, there's all this stuff just, mixed I, up. I, I, 
I had forgotten about that too. And that is just adds another layer to what we know of the prophet and Mm -hmm. the kind of man he was compared to the kind of man Gideon is. And Ivan makes a direct comparison between the two saying that if something were to happen to Maricela, if the same situation were to happen and his, you know, Gideon's relative were kidnapped, he would not hesitate to Mm -hmm. pay the ransom or to give in or Mm -hmm. to do what needed to be done. And just it's, so it's in those such subtle details that do so much work to deepen this story. And there are so many of them in this book. Well, and one of the, the has this little throwaway line where I, I always was baffled a little bit by Reyes being Reyes because I'm like, that's the last name. Why is he called Reyes? And um, then, oh, okay. He, he's actually a Fernando and uh, he doesn't, that's the name of the prophet and he doesn't want to be that name or He's just trying to reject his parents in all the ways that he can. You know, so I, and there's just a little line. I was like, oh, that makes more sense. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> and it does. And it does make sense, right? Given what we have already known and learned, why people who were on the inside or maybe kind of had that behind closed doors view of the prophet would not mm-hmm. want to be associated with that. I'm sure it's a little bit of both. I'm sure it's a little bit of like rebellion coupled with this legitimate desire to not be associated with this person that he doesn't care for, for good reason. But I love that this book does such a great job of talking about so many things, but doing it in a way where there's a lot, but it's not muddled. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's there, there are things that I forgot, but at no point in time were things like confusing or hard to decipher within the book yes. and it everything from like we were talking about privilege and the the worth of one life versus the worth of many lives and mental health and clinical depression ivan's mother mm-hmm. cora gets the chance to diagnose her as being clinically depressed and then is able to pull some kind of you know 22nd century next gen implant <laughs> tech with her basically to give her you know an ssri kind of permanent implant and it, mm-hmm. it really helps and so ivan figuring out his mental health and and what's going on with that and him and such a part of his storyline is just such a like to actually see it called depression on the page mm-hmm. and named as a mental illness is so nice and i really love that this that even though his mother gets this implant that changes her like from night to day to a point where it's actually really confusing to ivan because he's trying to put together the mother he ra- he was raised by to with the woman she is now to the point that he doesn't have that kind of easy answer to his own darkness and that his own uh, depression is going to have to be dealt with in different ways that he's going to have to talk it out even though he hates talking and that it isn't something like so I, I feel like they both gave you like hey future world where your antidepressant mm-hmm. is so much better mm-hmm. <laughs> and also but that doesn't solve everything yeah there's no miracle cure-all there's yes. no that brie and donna haven't created a world where in the future if you have a mental illness you can everybody can always just take a magic pill and be instantly cured no like ivan is gonna have to go quote like old school with like mm-hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy and mm-hmm. like whatever this version's world is of that and so yes it is nice to see both presented on the page neither one being like shamed or prioritized mm-hmm. and both being given equal value as productive ways to heal or to start to heal something like depression right and there's so much counseling that occurs in in sector one i mean dell's 
tattooing is a kind of therapy, you know, Mm -hmm. both by sort of making the invisible visible on people's skin. Uh, It's having these insightful conversations with people where she draws out the things that they most want to deal with. And then you have, I mean, all these little moments where there is counseling happen that isn't necessarily like I check in with my psychologist um, Mm -hmm. because that's what it would look like in their world. Um, Yeah, so there's all these... That's what I think, like what you were talking about. There's all these elements and they were not confusing. There's just many, many tracks, many things happening in this book. Uh, There is the political and the stuff. There's the emotional stuff of of Ivan having to come to a point where he finally realizes that he can live for something and and that he has to be, he wants to be a better person to be worth, you know, living Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And that of, of like, he wasn't planning on living. He's planning on dying. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to live, I don't want to live depressed. <laughs> you know, so mm-hmm. like that all that whole track. And then you have the stuff with providing homes for the refugees. And uh, what is what makes for a home? What do people need? What is necessary? And how that's different for everybody. Or Ivan has a very different perspective of what's necessary versus what uh, Maricela thinks is necessary just because of their lived experiences. So, yeah, there's so much. And I love that scene because it's it's a really nice kind of example of the two of them being able to meet kind of in the middle because... You know, Maricela is able to say to the contractor who's building these um, basically like capsule homes Mm -hmm. out of storage crates for this huge population of um, displaced war refugees Mm -hmm. and the displaced. um, You know, she's able to say, like, do what Ivan says. Ivan has the known lived experience to know what he's talking about. But also give me a plan for doing what I want in the future. Right. Or like to be able to expand, like we'll give Mm -hmm. them the minimum they need now to be housed fed safe and off of the streets and the tents that they're living in while at the same time looking forward to and putting hope and investing in a future expansion and a future providing of something that is a little more akin to luxury or isn't is a step beyond just the basic necessities of survival which even now Ivan is still very much so living in that mindset because like you said he's spent so long and has lived his life being brought up by his mother believing that the only way that his life was will be worthy is to die for a member of the royal family like his father mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. And so that coupled with like we've talked seen in the other books this kind of very um live hard, die young, we've already made our peace with death kind of mindset that the writers have has yeah. put Ivan in a place where for his entire life so far he's basically been not caring i mean mm-hmm. he does he, he doesn't necessarily go out like looking for trouble but he's also not f- hiding from it he's not running away from it and he has never had a reason to do that in the past and so i think that that's a really interesting way for these two characters and for maricela to have to finally come to like kind of reconcile with how important that is for him mm-hmm. and what it means for him and his kind of i mean th- sacrifice basically he would have to kind of sacrifice what he viewed as his sainthood or his Mm -hmm. future Mm -hmm. as a a known and revered figure which in her mind is what he's been living his whole life for in order to be with her and so that becomes a very kind of crux thing in the tension of their relationship right he because having that conversation with isabella where maricela is sort of confronted with the possibility 
that she has asked Ivan for something he didn't mean to share, want to give, that she has demanded something and that in her power as a Rios could have coerced him, essentially, given him no choice, that just devastates her. Uh, the thought that his love for her was somehow something that he gave despite one, you know, like, yeah, that that moment just because there's this whole thing where he's like, he's going to be the strong one. He's going to protect them from going too far. Uh, so it means he's always the one saying no in the denial which just builds into this moment where she thinks, oh my God, maybe he did want to say no. And I've just put him in a situation where he can't say mm -hmm. no to his princess. Uh, and that whole thing where like, she's his princess. And she suddenly realized she thinks that that means that he thinks of her. That, because he wants to touch her and dirty her up and give mm -hmm. her all those, you know. Mm -hmm. And when he's mm -hmm. saying my princess, it's because he feels blasphemous because he's saying mine. And she fears that he's that she is he's saying I'll do this for you because you're the princess. That's such a classic, amazing like no. You know, well, and it's such a good reversal of yeah. that power dynamic mm -hmm. in terms of like the genders, right? Like yeah. we are used to see, and like even in this series as a whole, we are so used to seeing like usually the man operating mm -hmm. out of what he believes is a sense of like what's right for mm -hmm. usually the woman or women and men that mm -hmm. he's in a relationship with trying to do that to save them right and in this case that's what Maricela is doing like she, Ivan has not said that he loves her because mm -hmm. that's a big thing for him and he has all of this baggage with like the vows he's already taken to Gideon mm -hmm. but he's made it very clear that he wants to pursue a relationship with her and mm -hmm. he's willing to let his guard down and pursue a relationship with her. And after that conversation with Isabella, she worries that she has coerced him or manipulated him. And f she believes that kind of for his own good and f to not have him. She has to let that, him go. She has <sighs> to let him go, push him away, get rid of him mm -hmm. without actually checking and asking. And that scene, ugh, because like Ivan has been spending the whole book taking his walls down, right? And yeah. learning to trust and to put faith in a future he's never even had to think about before. And he walks in and he sees her and he knows, he just knows what she's going to say. And like, he talks about how he can feel hope. And like, I connect so strongly with that feeling of like, mm -hmm. you don't wish for good things because if you don't think good things are going to happen if you don't have hope it's so much easier to pretend you're not affected mm -hmm. or to keep yourself removed or to not care right or at mm -hmm. least to pretend to not care mm -hmm. but he started to do that with her so then he feels doubly gut punched that like he started to feel this way and he feels stupid for feeling like he could have hope yeah. on top of now he feels like he's losing Maricela. So it's that double layer of like, that just, ah, uh, ah, uh, breaks my heart. Breaks my well, heart. Well, and also, you know, he, he spent all this time watching her let people down gently. That fake veneer that she puts to protect herself. And then it's turned on him. And it's just this like betrayal, double betrayal. And she is just trying to protect him. And, and you're like, oh, honey, that's just... Too late. <laughs> just, yeah, just like it just no. And it's just you can just see it like happening. Like this is one of I think the more like and then she gets so mad at him. <laughs> well, because like and it's so hard, right? Because she asks him, she's like, the one thing you never said is you never said whether or not you loved me. And she asks him, do you love me? And he knows in that moment 
that he can't tell her the true answer, which is yes, because she's already made it clear that she does not want or feels like they can't be together. So if he tells her that he loves her now, he will they're be both, manipulating yeah, they're, her. They will both they're be both going to be, yeah, they're both just going to hurt each other by doing that. So like he's put in this really hard, like catch 22 of like she knows and he knows but now he can't say it because (laughs) she's asked him to say it and that that does become like a power dynamic thing and so it's like it's so fascinating and hard because they are both trying so hard to give the other person what they want and to do it with a clean conscience and so that the other person doesn't feel bad. But like both people in the relationship can't always be sacrificing all the time or this is like what ends up happening. It's the whole monkey's paw kind of, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like they're both thinking, like I was crying on my way to work. <laughs> Because I, that's when the scene where he walks into her room and she's all like formal and ready to give him his... And I'm like, no! So I'm driving into work and I just sat at work going... <gasps> because it's a lot, right? And it's hard because like neither one of them is really the bad guy. I'm like, I so sympathize and empathize and understand where Ivan is coming from when like he just wants to shut it down. Like the minute she basically turns that false front, like fake smile on him, he basically is like, you know what? Forget it. We'll just pretend it never happened. We don't need to do it. We're we're not going to talk about it. We'll just rewind to a couple weeks ago where we hadn't fucked and we hadn't had dates and we weren't in love with it. You know what? We don't got to talk about it. It's done. And so like, I get that, right? (laughs) Because like the last thing you want to do if you feel like you've been vulnerable and then somebody hits you right in your vulnerable spot is like continue to leave that up, right? You want to like slap and cover and get your walls back up as quickly as you can while also getting rid of that feeling of like shame. And so it's very like Well, and I think part of it, he doesn't want her to ruin what he felt about it with mm-hmm. what she's going to say. So if he can shut it down now, it can just be a hurt, a mistake and not have to... Mm-hmm be wrong and that's because that's such a big kind of thing for Ivan is is because he is Maricela's bodyguard and he's tasked with protecting her Mm -hmm. he knows he can protect her physically like he feels very like confident about his ability to protect her (laughs) tactically and physically but like he knows that he can't protect her mentally from Mm -hmm. so much of the burdens Mm -hmm. that she has to carry Mm -hmm. because that's just the burden of being a member of this royal family so now that he's in this scene and he has this chance to what he feels is like protect her from even this more continued from having to let another person down gently from having to go through another dismissal because he's seen her like you said go through that so many times so he feels like he's trying to protect her by doing all of that Mm -hmm. while at the same time hurting himself and he's very self-flagellating Ivan is he's very he's always the first person willing to take it out on himself and to put all of the responsibility on his own Mm -hmm. shoulders which is part of his kind of deep character flaw right Mm -hmm. that he's trying to Mm -hmm. work through because he is a member of the writers and he's not alone right and I mean and there's all that there's that moment where he realizes everybody in the writers knows except Deacon. <laughs> I love that that Deacon has the same blind spot as Gideon because 
it means Maricela's grown up. I just love the fact that it's Zeke and that, like they're all just like kind of chilling <laughs> and hanging out. And Zeke's like, uh, so uh, are we going to talk about how you guys are fucking all over town? Or like, no, are we just not going to? Are we not going to have that conversation? Are we just like, not going to talk and about it? And everybody's like, you then, said course, it. You're not allowed to say it. <laughs> I know, right? And of course, then Ivan is like, how does, do you know too? Everybody knows. And of course, everybody's like, I knew, I knew. I, <laughs> how I didn't could think I you'd know? actually do it. Of course, everybody knows. Like, we just didn't think you'd. So it's like. And that's one of those great moments, like you were saying, of kind of like therapy that's not, right? Mm-hmm. Or counseling that's mm-hmm. not. Because in that moment, the writers are able to give him kind of their blessing, even though some of the writers don't feel like they need to do that. And he, like Anna is able to let him know like, hey, Gideon's changing his mind about some things. Like he and I have already talked about this. Like you don't have to completely like, but it's also... The big question for him is not so much Gideon changing his mind so much as like Maricela is Gideon's sister. So like it's one thing for him to change his mind for Anna and Deacon or in general. It's a whole different. Yeah. Does he want me touching my grubby hands, touching my sister? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and that's where it's so interesting. There's that moment because I think there's such a parallel between the moment where he tells the writers from the moment where Maricela tells Isabella. And I mean, there's points in the book that I want to be so mad at Isabella, but I also know that she's trying so hard to be a big older sister who really thinks she's doing the best because she has these arranged marriages that have worked out and she's fallen in love and they have these big, happy, polyamorous families. And she wants to settle Maricela into the safety of one of those. But doesn't really realize how much power she has over Maricela also. She has really big power. You know, she is the religious mm-hmm. head. And so she just is able to sort of put things in a place that where Maricela just can't say no to her. It's It doesn't necessarily get into it on the page, but I wonder how much of that has to do with the fact that she is adopted. Like, I know that she is treated as, and everybody sees her as a full sibling in this family. But at the same time, like, she is aware of the fact that on some level, on a most base level, like, she is not and she was brought into this world and given these opportunities and I think she kind of feels like she doesn't want to then not waste that but like let down her family members and I love that we see that scene where she has to walk through her head and kind of reason through like maybe Isabella really doesn't realize yeah that what she sees as just like casual hints or care or <laughs> yeah. like, suggestions. Did she just think like she was just things. suggesting? Yeah like oh. did she think she was just making casual suggestions and like she gives Isabella the benefit of the doubt, right? Mm-hmm. And she chooses to believe that Isabella believes that she really is just trying to be helpful well, and, and that I, she's not scheming or kind of trying to put pressure, undue pressure on Maricela to make one of these choices. Well, and I think that's where there's uh, an interesting thing to contrast Isabella with Estela Rios, or with Estela Reyes, right? They are both matchmaking mamas right now, right? And they're trying to make arrangements, but. I do think that Isabella comes from a place of more love than Estella does because, you know, to the point where, you know, Nita wants to marry, not because, you know, she's always seemed less than, she's felt all these pricks of being, you know, too big, too clumsy, all these things, right? Not good enough for Gideon um, element. And then her little sister is not allowed to draw because that's not 
like a profitable thing for a for a rich family to pursue. But at the same time, Sarah is being is it Sarah? Yeah, the uh, the, the sis- fortune teller. No, what is the the one that's the designer? Oh, Grace. Grace, thank you. She Grace. uh she's uh being courted by all these families because of her drawing talent. And so it, there's all these layers to because it's, it's, to me that shows that Estella is is really looking at what she wants for them rather than how can I use what they are for my benefit? Because she Mm -hmm. could be training her to be a designer and an artisan of a different kind, Mm -hmm. um, marry her off to the Monteros, you know? It is interesting because it puts, it puts into perspective where kind of all of the families are kind of in proportion to each other in terms of like power. Mm -hmm. Because obviously everybody is trying to marry into like the Rios family, but also, the Montero family and the Reyes family, they're not like slouches. Like, you know, they are admirable families as well. So there's this very interesting, like, co-mingling of power. And yeah, I get the feeling that, like, Estela Reyes, like, she is operating with much more, like, blunt force. Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel like Isabella is kind of trying to more, like, subtly move kind of the pieces around. And she says, you know, like, she would never want her siblings to not marry for love or not to or not to be in a relationship where they didn't have the potential, potential for love yeah. to find love yeah. right but I feel like that's always the line we hear right like mm-hmm. going back to our regency mm-hmm. kind of you know check boxes the I don't want you to you know it's not that I don't want you to be in love it's just why couldn't you be in love with this person well, oh, who or, also just happens but to uh, be... it's almost even saying like you're more likely to have a healthier love relationship. It's going to be mm-hmm. more equal among your equals, right? And like because that's where she highlights the power inequality between her and Ivan, and highlights the things that are going to be detrimental. Like they're not going to have the support of the, the of the people, and and that's where like there's that contrast within the conversation with the the writers where they're thinking, oh. This is how we can make this work. And Isabella's like, this is how it's not going to (laughs) work. Like there is a time at which Maricela considers or is given the chance to consider like a very, quote, like convenient situation for her where she Mm -hmm. could marry somebody who also has affection but not love for Mm -hmm. her. And they could both pursue or expand their families. You know, this is a a society that is uh, polyamorous Mm -hmm. and not monogamous. So there is that potential option. But Maricela knows that even if she could convince Ivan to be involved with that, that's not, that's still a betrayal of what she ultimately wants the situation to be. She doesn't want to be in a companionable, but ultimately kind of right. she, romantically she, she loveless that, marriage. She, she receives that proposal from someone mm-hmm. who is himself in love with someone that's unsuitable, right? Yeah, in love with the gardener. The mm-hmm. gardener boy, you know, and mm-hmm. and they can respect each other and be friends with each other. But she wants to be married to Ivan and she wants to be united to him. And she's never going to be satisfied with him being a lover she takes on the side. Because let's be honest, he wouldn't get to marry her as another spouse because Mm -hmm. he's still been a a writer, right? And Mm -hmm. so it would be just a love affair that she can have. In the way that the gardener, maybe you can marry the gardener, (laughs) but maybe not. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's just that moment of like, that's not what she wants for her relationship. She wants her love to be open and acknowledged and accepted by everyone because she loves Ivan. She wants for people to see all that he is, for him to see all that he is. And this is... 
they are another great example of a relationship in this world where they make each other the better version of themselves by being together. And so I just I love the way that the the relationship gets resolved and like amongst all the other political stuff and the we learn about Gabe and we learn about Hunter and we are very clearly I'm just gonna say it getting some signals about uh Avery Perino and oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Gideon. <laughs> oh I love Avery so much and I love Gideon going like wait what <laughs> I love Avery. I love the idea of, I love getting to see it from that far out, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's one of the joys of being a romance reader in series like this is being able to kind of like see it coming and really enjoy getting to like watch it develop. Like granted, this is like, I think the first book where we're really starting to like get the pretty heavy handed, like from both of Mm -hmm. them, from Gideon and from Avery, that there's some like... There's been some eyes. I mean, they dance. Way. They dance in the big <laughs> ball. Uh, it's so good. Like, I love that ball. I love that we get like a getting ready scene. I love that we get a like all the writers look good in their tuxes scene. And we get like dancing. It's just very like, oh. it is nice to see kind of the intersection between old world mm-hmm. quote romance and mm-hmm. this new world and environment. It feels very much so like that Jared and Gia kind yeah. of like taking that category romance and then putting it in this new environment. Oh, and, and it's just so Gideon good. is being set up to be the big brother Duke. Uh, mm-hmm. ro- and if you're not a Regency reader, there is a thing. And I, I had a conversation with Nikki. Hi, Nikki. About <laughs> what the Duke romance older brother thing is. And it's that whole, there's always these big families and Regency romances. And if there's a older brother Duke, he's going to be the last one. You know who's mm-hmm. gonna get married, and he. I always think of the Bridgertons and whatever mm-hmm. Anthony or whatever it is. The, his book the, is the number simply, like eight the, the, or the something ball- in the, the ballad yeah. novels, the Simply Wicked's. That's the same thing. You know, it's mm-hmm. it, they they play sort of a matchmaking role. They somehow assist all the other relationships. Their siblings all find love, but there's not gonna be true love for them. And then they fall the hardest until and- there is, and then you get to the last book, and there is, and like. Not always, but usually it's somebody who you've seen kind mm-hmm. of been like dancing and for somehow it's unsuitable to be the Duke's wife. So, so yeah. So guys, maybe Bree and Donna are not taking us there, but that's where I think they're taking us. Romance is just the fucking best, you guys. <laughs> it's so good. I love romance books. Uh, but yeah, okay. Uh, we are getting close to uh, about a quarter or three quarters of an hour. Mm-hmm. Do we want to or any favorite parts, quotes, things that? We would have liked to see more on the page of or tweaked a little bit at all. Well, I love when he goes and takes her out to get food on the outside on the sectors. Yeah, and that's a good one. There's just that moment of like people know him there, not as a writer. Um, they and they don't know her, and that she can just be the girl that he's with. Um, And that's just such a cute little moment where she gets that little freedom of getting to experience something that she would never get to do. When she goes and barters and is terrible at bartering. It's so good. (laughs) And he's just like watching her and being like, oh, like you sweet summer child. That's so precious. Like, look at you trying. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's just, oh, and I love the whole thing of like, he, he he, he, he pretends to sneak her out and sneak her back in because she has so much fun sneaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though she's, he's already, you know, like he gets the nods from the royal guards because yeah. their security is better than that. But he doesn't yeah. want to burst her little bubble. And it's just so cute. It's just like he's, it's yeah. So, he's, he, like, 
that's the thing is that Ivan loves her so much and is so willing to humor her. Like, and I love that because I just love that we get to see that softer kind of side of him and that side of him that it's not like he's just willing to die for her Mm -hmm. because like he is, but he's also willing to have fun for her and he's willing to dance for her and to take her out for tamales and to and how much she lives for his smiles and, for trying getting uh, him to like crack uh, just even like his eyes are smiling and listen yeah. i am not usually one for <laughs> blonde haired blue eyed but like uh, i it's i i dig it i can dig it uh, but i just i love that like i love the scene where we see that uh, Maricela has chosen to get a raven tattoo yeah. to commemorate yeah. the man that she had to, to kill to save kill Gideon. saving Gideon's life in the last book and what that means for her and kind of this underlying like subtextual debate about what that means for Ivan or the fact that like he does what he does as a writer so that she is never supposed to have to do that mm-hmm. but she also doesn't feel bad about it like she she doesn't enjoy having done it but she says she would uh, have done it again if given the chance like she knows that she wouldn't take it back if it means saving Gideon that's not something she's willing to like take back and so it's just really interesting like is her having taken one life as bad as all of the ones that he's Mm -hmm. taken if they've Mm -hmm. done it for the same reason or if if you know he's done it in protection or does it invalidate his ravens because she has one and she was never supposed to and it's just this really kind of further reckoning with this concept of death Mm -hmm. in this society Mm -hmm. and the way that they've kind of constructed it yeah absolutely uh there's so much you know like so i'm looking forward to the short stories because i want to uh, i so want to read Dell's story because the more we know of her and as a this tattoo priestess the more mm-hmm. i want to know about what brings her into this faith um and i think there's there's a lot of reckoning in this book with what it means to believe in a faith when you are also so betrayed by it mm-hmm. um and that's something that all the rios have to contend with um because of the prophet that they mm-hmm. all these people they they know who the prophet really is and so we have that of like the tenets of this faith is that love right mm-hmm. but again and again it's betrayed with the the ways like the machinations for power and all that kind of stuff so i mean that's something that you know you know i'm i i adore in these novels and they continue to well, unpack that, yeah i agree and i i think that's what makes it so lovely that at the end ivan and maricela can come to this place where ivan realizes that the legacy he leaves behind is love Mm -hmm. and is his love for both the writers and Gideon but also now for Maricela Mm -hmm. and being able to provide her this happiness and to be kind of her hero is a legacy worth leaving Mm -hmm. regardless or irrespective of whatever other activities or other lives Mm -hmm. he may impact like along Mm -hmm. the way it Mm -hmm. comes back to him being satisfied and her being satisfied with that being the legacy for both of them and this this family and this testament that they're building. So it's just really great. We really love this book. It's really good. Uh, I'm so excited for the next one. I'm very excited to read the short stories. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we will be back in a couple of weeks to do a couple round of short stories. We have some that feature some people from 
the uh, sectors and some overlap. We have some that are just about some of our writers and stuff. So um, yeah, so we will be doing an episode on the Sixth Sense and Mackay, as well as Diplomacy and High Priestess. That's, that's it, yes. We'll also be doing an episode on Zombies, Girls Night Out, and Gia. Those yes! are our three that kind of, uh, I know I'm so excited, but those are three that kind of um, mix and match and float kind of around in terms of where they are and like the plots of the books so and that yep and then we will be uh waiting for the next book to get released <laughs> but mercenary librarians will be out and february. it will be out soon yes it will be out in february so you will not have to wait super long from us luckily but or the march all right friends um until our short story episodes do you want to go ahead and tell them where they can find us online on it you can find us at beyondthesectors.com or at beyond sectors on twitter and i am on twitter at an outlaw life and i'm there as anna Koki. all right friends well until next time take care of yourselves take care of each other and we'll see you beyond the sectors bye friends Bye bye